Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. Before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider supporting us there. If you contribute to our crowdfunder, you can receive a great selection of rewards, notably sheaves of successful magazine pitches from myself, Rachel and former co-hosts and friends of the show. Thanks very much to Jenny Smith-Wilson for her contribution this month. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with the author Jeff Dyer. We spoke to Jeff about his early life and his entry into writing, about fiction versus non-fiction, and about the economics of his writing life. This is another episode that we recorded remotely during lockdown, so please forgive us for any uh, problems with the audio, but it's otherwise a great episode and we really hope you enjoy it. So, Jeff, really good to have you on Always Take Notes and um, appreciate your patience with recording this remotely. I wanted to start by talking a bit about your early life, growing up with um, your, fair to say, sort of fairly working class background and then getting to getting to Oxford. And I was reading a, a Guardian interview with you saying that after you graduated, you were living on the dole in Brixton and and this was kind of a difficult thing for your parents to understand. And I was wondering how, you know, did did that kind of very traditional like exam escalator that you you referred to there how did that fit with you becoming a wanting to be a writer yeah well thank you god what a, a big big question here you're going to have to expand this episode so we've got at least 24 hours to cover all of this uh, socio-economic history but uh, yeah you've, you've summarized my situation but um, I always feel that there's a kind of a, a warning light, uh, an oxymoron warning light goes off with this combination of um, uh, the factor of working class background. But I grew up in Cheltenham, which people think of as being such an archetypal, rather posh Regency uh, uh, t- uh, town. But yeah, of course, there is a, a working class there, as there is as there is everywhere. Um, I guess I should also add I was born in 1958, so in many ways. I mean, the uh, society was geared to uh, to make sure there was a constant supply of, of boys like me, boys, more boys, I would say, than girls, um, who would take the 11 plus, go to grammar school, and from grammar school on to, uh, to university, all, all, all this kind of stuff. And yeah, so what I, what I really need to emphasize more than anything is that there was, I should not take any personal credit for, for this. There was absolutely no sense of pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. It was a completely uh, a completely passive process. And, um, you know, there was a long tradition of people from my uh, grammar school going to Oxford. Uh, and I did that, and it was great. And I think what happened is that, um, weirdly, I sort of ended up taking the values of literature, which is that it's, you know, important. It's not important to have lots of money. It's, um, it's all about the sort of quality of life in the, in the largest sense. Uh, and I so liked studying literature at university, it seemed that um, I rather liked the idea of um, spending more time reading. So it made, made total sense to, um, to sign on the dole after that. Uh, and conveniently, it was a period of mass unemployment. So it was a completely uh, respectable thing to do. And um, uh, it was, yeah, it suited me rather well, but it did come as a source of great surprise to my parents who assumed that after Oxford, I might go on to a 
um, a more respectable life in their terms. Of course, they were unaware that this was a, you know, actually a, uh, this was this was a sign of my having ascended to the to a version of the middle class. And I think you said your first published piece was book review. What were some of the other things you were writing, and how did you go about starting um, a career in writing? Oh yeah, oh great, how nice that we can start falling out at this early stage. I always like it when, it, when it's a, there's a slightly uh, uh, sort of adversarial quality. So it was, it's, it's, it's never been a career in writing for, for me. I mean in many, if it was regarded as a, as a career, then it's been sort of semi-disastrous really. This is my, my writing life has, has not been the way you go about building a, um, a career. And also, I guess it's something else that I would emphasize. I mean, I like the idea of writing, of course, but I mean, in a real sense, I mean, writing is it's something that's left for you when other options haven't worked out. So really, it was um, the fact that there were no jobs, of, there were so few jobs available in the, in the early uh, 1980s. Uh, meant that well, you know, nothing else was was available in a way that you know, uh, in a different time, it might have been possible to get on in TV or something else, or even academia or whatever. So writing was something I just kind of drifted into. But you're absolutely right. The first thing I wrote was a book review, uh, and that grew out very naturally from um, the life that I've just described at university, where of course one is reading a lot. And then all that was happening really is that, um, you know, the Oxford English course stopped with, I think the most recent person we did was Samuel Beckett. And after that, I mean, well, two things went on, went, happened. One, my reading became more international, so that all the Russians to read, having done English. And also I was getting more and more up to date, um, to the extent that I was getting paper-buying paperbacks soon after they were published. And then I was actually getting impatient for the hardbacks, and it made sort of sense at that point. I mean, how do you get even more up to date? Well, you get hold of books not after they're published, but before they're published. And um, yeah, I was. Uh, it was just a question of becoming more and more up to date. And um, so I, I mean, I gradually became a, a writer, um, and, and book writing about books was the the way in which that that process began. What was London in the 1980s kind of like for someone making their way in, in those steps? I mean, I've seen, I think Ian McEwan talk about his immediate post-university experience and saying, you know, he could get like a big flat. It wasn't that expensive. Um, the things that, that kind of people today talk about, like the prohibitive cost of London as a place to pursue a creative career. Um, but at the same time, I suppose Brixton had there'd been riots and things like without taking off any nostalgic goggles as much as possible. <laughs> You know, did it? Do you think it was a a good time to be making making your way? Uh, what a what a great question, Simon, and what a almost impossible one to answer because um, it's so difficult to sort of see it for for what it really was. I think there there's several things uh, going on here. I mean, first of all, I mean, first of all, it was a time in the 1980s when. Uh, the exact opposite of what it's been for the last several years where, you know, 
every time you go to buy the Guardian now in the shops, if you ever if you ever do, it's gone up another 10p and it's lost another four pages. Mm. Uh, in the 1980s, there were just more and more supplement. You know, the newspapers were getting thicker and thicker with more and more cultural leisure or let's say non-news uh, supplements. So there was more and there were more and more opportunities <clears throat> to write about lifestyle and culture and books, all this kind of stuff. And I think also that coincided with some sort of deunionization. So it was possible to write for uh, it was getting easier to write for newspapers and magazines without going down the straightforward uh, cub reporter kind of route. So I think that's uh, that's you know just on the employment aspect of things that's really important. That coincided also with the fact that um, you know the safety net of the welfare state was uh, was in very robust condition. So uh, while it wasn't easy to earn a lot of money. You didn't need a lot of money because, uh, you know, the rent could be paid by, uh, by, on, a, on a flat by, 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 the, by the state. And also, London at that point was still so geared up for people living cheaply. It was, uh, I mean, I feel very conscious that I, uh, as it to use an inappropriate phrase, I bought into, as it were, the kind of fag end of the alternative sort of post-hippie thing of just, uh, you know, of, um, uh, uh, yeah, of living cheaply. And there was a whole, I mean, London was so set up for this. I mean, it, I keep, you know, I keep thinking about just how, yeah, how, how cheap everything was. Um, cheap and sort of low quality as well. So although, I mean, Ian McEwen is 10 years older than me, so a different, a different generation. But yeah, uh, there was, uh, you know, life in Brixton looking back, or in London generally, I mean, I look back to it now, and it seems in a way rather like, rather Soviet-like and rather sort of grim compared with the great sort of boom of the, of the cappuccino years. But yeah, it was very, very conducive to living, to living, uh, to living uh, cheaply, I, I, I think. Could you kind of sketch for us how you came to write your first book then from from those kind of early years and and book reviews and writing about literature mm, yeah well again it everything just uh, continued from that so it was a just such a great time of my life intellectually uh, in the 1980s when i was living on the doll in brixton in a flat with a uh, all, nearly all graduates quite a lot of them oxford graduates um really you know it's just that i always i'm mean, now i teach here in um in America, and I'm teaching quite often these um, people doing MFAs, and they're in their mid-twenties, and I'm always reminded what a great period that is in one's life, because one has done, one's, one, one has, um, you know, the brain has been formatted, as it were, and you know how to, to start finding stuff out, and it's a period typically of just great cultural, uh, you're just really absorbing a lot of, a lot of cultural stuff, and I remember very distinctly during this period uh, of discovering a lot of new writers, one of whom was John Berger, who really opened up all sorts of possibilities of, um, of, of writing and new, new forms of books. And it made total sense, there was a complete boring logic to it, that having 
written a lot of book reviews, you know, what would I, what would, what might I do? Uh, well, I'd end up writing a book about John Berger, this writer that I, you know, that I loved so much. Uh, and so I, I got a contract from Pluto Press with an advance of a thousand pounds to do exactly that. And I proceeded then to, to write this um, unbelievably boring book about John Berger, this great writer who in many ways I so failed to do justice to because I, I don't know, in some ways I must have had some residual kind of craving for academic respectability. So effectively, while sort of living on the doll in Brixton, I ended, I ended up writing some sort of sort of rather poor quality PhD, really, you know, just a very straightforward work of of critical uh, analysis and uh, yeah so it grew yeah my first book published in 1986 uh, just about published in 1986 I should say because right at the moment when I was um, I meant to get the first copy of the book uh, Pluto went into into, into receivership uh, setting a setting a precedent for, for the for, for bad luck that has dogged my entire writing life but yeah that's how that first book came about and it served a very useful purpose I think because almost as soon as I uh, finally got a copy when uh, when Pluto was sort of rehabilitated I thought oh my god why did you know why did I do that why did I write a boring book when I could have written an interesting book and thereafter I like to think I've sort of dedicated myself to writing um, interesting books uh, interesting for the reader and much more interesting and fun for me to write so you've um pushed in a lot of your work against this distinction between fiction and non-fiction. Was that something that you were kind of aware of early on, or was that a path that, that just became more, more clear to you, that you wanted to, to break down some of those barriers? Yeah, I think it, I mean, I was conscious of it, but what I certainly wasn't, uh, I was not any kind of, uh, I was, I was no Johnny Rotten kind of figure. There was no uh, I had no desire to uh, unleash anarchy in the in the world of UK publishing or tear down the the barricade separating fiction from non-fiction. I was never a a revolutionary or a um, you know it's not like I ever drew up a manifesto manifesto of intent or or anything like that. Uh, it was a, a much gentler and personal thing, um, and the two things of reading and writing, as ever, went very much hand in hand. So. My experience at university was entirely a reading, uh, you know, fiction really, except for reading books about books. So the, the distinction was, you know, I thought of literature as being, uh, you know, in prose as being the novel. And then when I started reading people like John Berger and Roland Barthes, on the one hand, I became conscious of these, uh, these other kind of books that I could read. And also I became conscious of maybe a form of writing which would uh, enable me to be a, a writer because um, I was um, um, less than well equipped in all sorts of ways to write uh, straightforward fiction. I mean, the most obvious one of which is that uh, you know I've always struggled with um, with plot creation. I mean, there's other as I know that there's more to writing fiction than plots, but um, I think that that sense of a, a widening of a widening of formal possibility uh, beyond uh, the strict um, uh, sort of uh, uh, area of the novel 
was a great, was a really important, um, uh, yeah, that really made things possible. And it was very, very liberating and encouraging for me, uh, uh, I think. I like the Johnny Rotten reference because uh, I read one uh, interview with you where you where they described your style as genre demolition, uh, which sounds oh. aggressive. Mm. <laughs> um, in terms yes. of blending reportage fiction, kind of other styles of writing, um, for But Beautiful in 1991, which is obviously a book about jazz, how mm. do you go about researching and, and putting together a book like that? Oh yeah, I mean, oh, this is this is great, yeah. Because um, it's funny that I mean, we can come back to this uh, notion of the, you know, I was talking about the Berger book as being a kind of, you know, a sort of a kind of default PhD. I mean, you know, it was the the jazz book was, I would say, anything but researched. I mean, what was going on is that, um, oh yeah, we got this all ties in quite nicely. So in this uh, shared slum that we lived in in Brixton in the 1980s, I had a friend there who I knew from Oxford who had this great jazz collection and, uh, you know, he really got me into, in, into jazz and we just had so many great evenings, you know, when, you know, when I heard Alabama by Coltrane for the first time or, or, um, you know, or get it or Wednesday night prayer meeting by Mingus. And I listened to all this stuff and I was so passionate about jazz and so wanting to learn more about it. Um, but, um, that, that desire never took the form, it, it seemed to me, of me researching it. I was just endlessly curious. And uh, anyway, I went to, to New York. Um, to uh, I got an advance from a, a publisher in, in Britain to, uh, to do this book about jazz. And I suppose you could say that um, one of the things I was doing there was researching it. And yeah, I went to the Institute of Jazz Studies but it never felt like research at all. It always felt, it felt exactly like it did when I first got into that world of uh, Dylan bootlegs in, when I was a, a student and, and thereafter. It just felt like, um, you know, uh, following up on this great enthusiasm. There was never any of the, the drudgery of, uh, that I associate with research and there was never any of the uh, systematic approach. It just felt like, you know, as it, you know, you, when you're pursuing a hobby, it never feels like any kind of work. It, so it was just like that, really. And I guess the other crucial thing I need to emphasize is that this was in, uh, this would be in about 1918. Yeah, this was uh, exactly 1989 when I went to do this. So jazz was so thriving still in, in New York, and it was possible to see, to, to, to feel such a direct connect, to perceive such a direct connection between the people I was going to see play every night and the people that they had played with in the past who I was writing about, these kind of, uh, you know, figures like, um, um, uh, you know, Charles Mingus and so forth. So it was, I was learning about it and writing about it and, um, I mean, it would be an exaggeration to say I was living it because, of course, I can't play a note of music. Um, uh, but yeah, I was. It was part of a. It was part of a, a, a. Being a jazz fan was a life I could lead. And I guess I'll, I'll just mention something else because it it seems so it seems so novel so novel at the time. Although it's something that people take for granted now. I was absolutely the benefic beneficiary of this 
you know, a really important technological breakthrough, uh, the Walkman, so that, uh, you know, we all take it for granted now. But if you maybe, I don't, uh, but it, it was so weird back then, the experience of walking around with uh, headphones on and this music in your head, it was so different. And it meant for somebody uh, like me that if I was <clears throat> writing about Thelonious Monk, I could walk up to the neighborhood where Monk lived uh, and see everything that he had been seeing with this music absolutely in my head, which was so in conducive to a kind of synesthesia whereby the music expressed itself in terms of what I was uh, seeing and smelling and what I was seeing and smelling uh, was so, um, so, so bleeding all the time into the music. So that was a uh, that was absolutely important. That, uh, that 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 way of doing things. It made life very very easy, and it had been possible technologically only a few years uh, before that. I think. Could we talk about D. H. Lawrence? Did you you know writing out of sheer rage? Was your relationship mm. with him a passion one? I mean, how would you compare your relationship and the process of writing that book on Lawrence with with writing about jazz? Oh yeah, very very similar. I mean, so. Um, uh, and I think the motive for nearly all of the books has been pretty much the same. So with jazz, it was, God, why, you know, what is it about this music, uh, which I had only discovered in my uh, in my late 20s. With Lawrence, of course, it was very different because I discovered him at school. But I think on the one hand, I could say, yeah, Lawrence was a really important figure for me personally for all sorts of reasons because I loved Sons and Lovers. Uh, and I had a photograph of him on my bedroom wall in a way that now somebody of my age might have a picture of whoever it is young people have pictures of now. So there was a very personal thing that I had. But as is so often in one's life, it turns out that this personal feeling I had was actually quite a common thing in that it's not unusual at all for people to have an especially uh, passionate personal relationship to D.H. Lawrence to be somewhat uh, in love with him and um, uh, you know I mean I've, I've made this distinction before but I think it's a reasonable one you know people can really really love the books of E.M. Forster but I think E.M. Forster for all sorts of reasons and I say this not to diminish at all his literary achievement there's never going to be a cult of personality around Forster, but there always was about D.H. Lawrence. So that really, you can see anybody who met Lawrence for more than five minutes ended up writing a memoir about, their, about the time they spent with him. And even those of us who came along later, uh, still there was that kind of thing that you didn't just like Lawrence's books. You became some sort of apostle of of, of, of Lawrence the man, which was useful because actually a lot of the writing and a lot of the books was just sort of crazy, it was either really, really bad or just sort of crazed nonsense. But yeah, it was, uh, it was, um, it was such a passionate uh, uh, relationship. And in some ways, Lawrence seemed to uh, embody the, uh, something about the life of the, the writer, which seemed, uh, which seemed e extremely appealing. And um, yeah, so uh, uh, out of sheer rage, uh, grew directly out of that. Um, and there's two things. There's a there's there's a lot of things going on there. But one one of the serious things is to um, to try to work out 
what it is about Lawrence's uh, uh, um, uh, writing that remains fresh today. And it seemed to me that, um, okay, I mean, yeah, it's a bit of a struggle. I mean, it's a bit of a struggle to get through women in love now. And I was surprised to find that in many ways, the bits of Lawrence's writing that remained most fresh and most alive were those that came lowest down the traditional hierarchy of genres. So like the letters, out, right? Yeah, the, 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 you know, that's right at the, you know, right at the bottom, if you like. The letters were amazing. I also really liked the travel books and the essays. And so it seemed to me um, quite, quite useful that this person who, of course, um, uh, made such claims for the novel. The novel was the place where he was going to really, uh, you know, prove himself. Actually, in many ways, I think he turned. It turns out that the best of Lawrence is to be found outside the novel. And in that regard, he really did become our contemporary, precisely because of that thing I touched on earlier, whereby my exposure to Berger and uh, Bart and all these kind of people uh, that represented the beginning of what has since become a really important thing for me, which is that the the, uh, the arena in which you can uh, make sort of uh, um, uh, make your claim for literary greatness has now expanded so much uh, beyond the novel. So in a, in a in a, in all sorts of ironic ways, uh, Lawrence was the uh, was a, a, a very much a, a sort of precursor uh, of that. Out of Charade is partly about. Um or wrestles with the difficulty of writing a biography of, of Lawrence. Um, is it fair to say that you find writing not difficult, but certainly a challenge? I mean, in pieces you've discussed playfully your commitment to naps um, and, and doing things badly, but how do you kind of go about the writing process? Yeah, I mean, just to, to address the first part of your question, um, uh, it was, I mean, really, you know, the thing is that, that Lawrence has been very, very well served by uh, biographers. So I think um, at the time I was uh, writing my book, there was the, uh, by the t you know, there, there, there were a lot of biographies. The Cambridge three-volume um, biography of Lawrence was, uh, I think, maybe volume two had just been published. So uh, uh, there was absolutely no need for another biography of Lawrence, it, it seemed to me. And no real need for the uh, sober academic study that I um, that I claimed I was writing. Uh, so it, um, I, I mean, so that was the the sort of gag that I set up at the beginning was just that a gag. I thought that, but I thought there was scope for a crazy mad book about Lawrence. In fact, I mean, again to go back to what I was saying about John Berger, there was something inappropriate about my writing a dull, straightforward academic book about this wildly original writer. And it seemed to me that it was really appropriate to write a crazy book about this crazy man and crazy writer, D.H. Uh, Lawrence. So um, that's, what was, that's, what was, uh, that's what was going on there. And then in terms of what the, the, what the sort of writing process is like uh, for me, well, it's, you know, all writers are always complaining about uh, how difficult it is but I mean one thing that I started to sort of realize uh, with those uh, early books like the jazz book and the book about the first world war and the Lawrence book is that um, I think I started to realize there was no point me writing 
spend, spending any time writing the kind of book that somebody else could write. Uh, but I did have this kind of um, a, a kind of confidence, which is not unrelated to a kind of a kind of desperation, a feeling. Okay, yeah, but there is something. There is some kind of book that can be written that only I could write, and you know, I was willing to take that wager that this um, thing, which is potentially self-indulgent, might actually be more more worthwhile for people to read than the kind of book that uh, yeah that uh, any anyone could could write. And I always, with regard to that, I always come back to this wonderful line of Diane Arbus's when she says, you know, about, you know, there's other people doing this and that. She says, but I still feel I've got some slight corner on things. And uh, that's been, that's been enough for me, the idea of having just slight, some slightly unusual take on the subject matter, whatever the, whatever that subject matter is. With these real genre bending books that you're writing how does it work with your publishers like do they uh-huh. do they know what they're going to get and do, is is what you deliver the relate the relationship between the finished book and then how you might propose or sell it to your editors mm. how does yeah. how does that work yeah no, another great question thank you i mean this is something else that i've become so uh, convinced of that the um uh, the typical and necessary process for um, you know non-fiction books is it, it, it sort of it, I mean it can go like this really this is how it typically go, goes you know you spend a lot of time drawing up a proposal uh, on the basis of that proposal you then get an advance uh, you pocket the money and then you go away and write the book which dutifully fulfills the um, the, the the sort of uh, the proposal um, and. Um, that's it, um, and uh, that's. I mean, one, several things. One, I've always been constitutionally incapable of doing any kind of proposal or synopsis because it's just been so boring. It's one of the reasons why I've never ever wanted to get involved in any kind of um, film work at all because there you're always having to draw up for somebody else something which will grant you permission in the form of money. To um, to go on to the next stage, so I just I just hate writing any kind of proposal. I've never been an applier for grants or anything like that, um, so that's never worked for me. Um, and the way things have, have have happened, it's been two uh, twofold. Either I've just gone away and written uh, the book, the non-fiction book in the way that you do, you know, typically when you write a novel. So, for example, the First World War book, I just wrote that and handed it in to my agent who, who found a publisher for it. Um, the alternative is that it's always been just done on some sort of a wing and a prayer. Um, and in the case of the jazz book, I had a very good relationship with an editor. And really, um, uh, I said to her, look, I, I, I promise, I can't do a proposal, but I promise this will be a, um, this will be a book you'll, you'll, you know, I'll promise I'll write a, um, a good book about, uh, about jazz. And I went away and did that. But yeah, doing a proposal, um, and um, that would just be, that's just so terrible for me. I, I really, I, I, I can't bear it. And then I can bring this further up to date, whereby, um, you know, I mean, the most spectacular instance of this I can think of is when 
I sold my novel Jeff in Venice, Death and Varanasi to, uh, to a new publisher, uh, Canongate in the UK. Uh, and then they were interested to learn what I was going to do next. And uh, for all sorts of reasons, I said, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do a book about tennis. And I didn't need to do a proposal for this for all sorts of reasons that we don't go into now. And I, you know, very happily got the money for the novel that I'd finished and this new book. And then when it came to it, I had no desire to, 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 to write it. And uh, to cut a long story short, uh, 18 months later, I handed in the book about tennis, which had changed somewhat. It had become a book about uh, Andrei Tarkovsky. And I, what I'd done is, uh, instead of writing the book about tennis, I'd summarised his film uh, about Stalker. And this is something that I'd emphasise, really, that writers are often bitching about publishers and about how publishers are always wanting them to be more commercial and all this kind of stuff. But actually, my experience of, of publishers, they've been really uh, surprisingly tolerant, given that they could justifiably have said, A, um, you know, this, this isn't the book that was contracted, uh, and even if we like this book about Tarkovsky, the truth is that Tarkovsky is a lot less commercially viable uh, than tennis. But in both the UK and uh, America, they, um, they, 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 they happily, well, they, 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 with some surprise, they, they, uh, you know, they took delivery of and published this, uh, this book about Tarkovsky. And I mean, I'm grateful to them, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely right that they, sh you know, I make their lives more interesting. And this is what, you know, publishers should be, should be, anyone can publish a, you know, a blockbuster novel by anybody, but it's exciting for them to get this kind of crazy, unpublishable book and find a way to, to, to publish it. So um, I make their lives difficult and, uh, and intensely rewarding, I like to think. Presumably the kind of tolerance of filing a totally different book to what was commissioned is because your prose is acceptable and not unpublishable and because you have a kind of established profile and presumably you have followers that will read whatever you write. Um, I would offer just one small amendment uh, to, uh, to that idea that I can sort of get away with this because I have some sort of profile. I mean, yes, there is this common... Uh, paradigm, if you like, the idea that you do your big commercial books and then having achieved a certain reputation, you can then be free to do your less commercial um, um, and, uh, you know, totally uh, free, you know, your own more personal kind of work. Well, that's sort of true, except it turns out quite often that after a certain degree of success, your idea of what your personal passion project is has been so um, affected by uh, by commercial success that at the deepest personal level, that's what you want. And I say that not at all critically, but uh, it uh, yeah, and, and the stakes for everybody would be uh, higher. I mean, for me, actually, right from the start, I was only interested in doing my my own thing, uh, partly because it's not like I, even though we always sort of have this idea that it's quite easy or whatever, you can you can you know you can discover the formula for a bestseller and then do your own. I mean, I've never been I've never been able to get access to that software or that algorithm or whatever it is. 
Um, and so my own case was rather different, really. I think one of the reasons that publishers have been sort of tolerant of what I've been up to is that the stakes have always been rather low. So, um, you know, it hasn't really made much difference whether a, 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 not very, a, a novel that didn't sell very well was followed by a, a book about, uh, you know, some other subject. So in some ways, I think there's been a, there's been a, in the midst of all this variegation of approach and subject matter, there's been a, a kind of consistency there. And um, it's the, the, um, the fact of having um, quite a low commercial profile has brought with it a certain kind of freedom of expectation on both my part and on the part of the, the publishers. So we could, we could put this rather more crudely by saying the great freedom I had is that nobody really gave a toss what I was doing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tradition over the podcast that we ask everyone about money and how it interfaces mm. with their writing life. How has that worked for you in terms of what fraction of your income has come from writing? And then how does the, you know, the university piece, the teaching element fit with that? Oh yeah, uh, that's a great question too. I mean, really, I mean, the thing is, I was such, such a, I was such a beneficiary of this time of when I started. So um, it was, uh, um, uh, yeah, I was always able to get by on very little money on uh, in, in London in the nineteen eighties, uh, and that didn't involve any kind of sacrifice at all. Um, and then a couple of things happened. One, I got a, a, a part-time job reading two days a week in a publisher's office, and that was that was really really great because I had uh, three, you know, three the remaining five five days uh, to myself. Um, and then there's always this idea that you know that the the what a shame that the novelist can't devote him or herself to writing. Uh, to, to writing these novels full time. Well, I never wanted to do that anyway, and I was always happy to um, to be doing a combination of um, of writing for magazines and newspapers and writing books. And one of the things about um, writing any kind of cultural journalism, of course, was that all sorts of stuff comes your way for free. So, um, you know, being a book reviewer, I was getting free books, writing about music, free CDs. And if I reviewed concerts, there was all so free concerts. So the whole lifestyle stuff was uh, was taken care of uh, like that. And then in addition, you know, for in normal life, going on holiday costs you money. Whereas with a bit of travel writing, I was finding that, wow, I was able to travel in much greater luxury than I would have done in normal life and get paid for it. So I think this uh, thing of a, a low income uh, allied to, to a really, a really quite, quite nice lifestyle was something I became accustomed to at an early stage. And in any case, the, the, the lowness of the income was so far, um, so much more, it was more than compensated by all the, um, all the time I had on my hands. And, you know, I would say with great pride, really, that, you know, I don't know how many taxes I've taken in London in my life. Um, I'd say it's probably less than 50 or 60. Uh, and that certainly never, ever seemed like any kind of uh, hardship at all. Okay, so there's that. And in, in Britain, you know, it was, uh, there's, uh, um, you know, it's, I mean, there's not, there's much more money in, in America. And, um, um, 
then the other thing that's very different about it in America is that uh, I became aware that nearly all writers in America um, had these teaching jobs, teaching creative writing. And of course, there's been a long tradition in Britain of skepticism about that, uh, which is gradually being eaten away at because uh, of course it's been a, it's been provenly successful here in America that you know nearly all writers um, have been through some kind of uh, creative writing uh, sort of program something like that um, and what happens in America is that you know when you're about 25 26 and you've published your slim book of poems or a, a book of short stories you get a teaching you get a teaching job then with the consequence that uh, the financial pressure is is off you um, uh, and uh, well there's that but for me I felt that in in Britain I thought it was no bad thing to have this lash of economic necessity keeping me writing a lot uh, that was I just felt that was a, a good thing and then I only came to uh, to start teaching in uh, in America really when I was into my into my 50s and I was really sort of ready for it then, and it felt like um, it felt like well, it just felt like a really good thing to do. I was really I was really happy to to do it, uh, and it was nice to have achieved, you know, really quite late in life a, a measure of financial um, security. So there's that. That was all nice, but, but nice. But more important than that, I think it's just so important when you get older to be. Um, to not become out of touch with what's happening in whatever your your field is. So I'm very conscious that um, although I'm meant to be teaching, uh, you know, these the, these young writers, uh, I'm conscious that actually my relationship with them is much more vampiric than one might think. That I'm dependent on them for all sorts of. Uh, 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 literary recommendations and you know all sorts of writers that I you know if it wasn't for stuff that's been recommended to me by my students you know I don't know I'd probably still be reading just I don't know Anthony Pohl or something so in in every way it's been it's been it's been just a an entirely positive thing for me uh, with no negative drawbacks and I've certainly not suffered from that uh, thing which um um uh uh, can happen when you get some sort of institutional thing whereby you just do the teaching and enjoy the institutional security, but um, you know you give up on the writing because actually I I I my uh, I I've just continued uh, write, writing a great deal because there's been uh, plenty that I've wanted to say still. Who um or what are some of the things that you've um, enjoyed as a result of your students' recommendations? Oh yeah, for so for example, yeah, I can give a, a good example of that. I mean, um, when I was teaching at the Michener Center in um, in Austin, Texas, they were all go they were all just crazy about this writer with a name that I couldn't even pronounce. So Tessa Mosfer, you know, I'd never 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 heard of her, and they said, oh, she's great and she's such a badass and all this sort of stuff. So of course, then I became rather resentful of this figure, and then I read her, and it turns out she was really really great. Uh, so that would be that would be one, and then you know uh, another example. There was one particular student of mine, also at the Michener Centre, who was just obsessed with uh, 
Joy Williams, who I'd never never heard of, and he, you know, he said you've got to read Joy Williams, and I did, and of course I became an instant convert to to Joy Williams with her collect, and ended up reviewing her collected stories, the the visiting privilege. So just lots of lot lots of lots of cases uh, like that. I mean the and even quite apart from these individual recommendations, it's just so so important in all aspects of one's life that you just never succumb to any kind of, uh, I don't know, antiquarian idea that uh, somehow, uh, you know, all the great writing in the, in the, all the great writing was done before the 1930s or whatever it is. Could we talk about your aircraft carrier book, which I really enjoyed? And, and oh, I was wondering, you. reading it, I'm, whether you were influenced by or had read Tom Wolfe's aircraft carrier essay, which was, I think, published in Harper's. It was like the origin of what eventually became the right stuff, but at a much earlier time. And he, during the Vietnam War, I suppose, embedded in modern parlance with a aircraft carrier in the Gulf of Tonkin. And I was wondering whether that was a kind of influence or point of departure for you doing that at all. Oh, how great to be able to say, that. well, Simon, if you'd read my aircraft carrier book thoroughly enough, you'll have noted that I actually quote from that uh, Tom Wolfe essay, jousting yeah. with whoever it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So how nice to have caught you out like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, so I became, uh, I became conscious of that uh, essay. I can't remember how, while I was writing the book. And um, yeah, several things going on here. I mean, so I read it and there's a big, Chunk, there's a really important chapter in the book about it because as I read it, I remember thinking, oh shit, you know, because the aircraft, te- a few technology, you know, the planes are different now to the what to the phantoms that uh, um, uh, um, uh, Tom Wolfe is writing about. But the experience is essentially unchanged and he just captured it so well that I had one of those, oh my God, it's already been said moments which are so fatal to, to writers. So yeah, my... My admiration for for um, for that book and the the right stuff were, were uh, are total. And I mean, they're I mean, they're, they're so great, you know. They're amazing, aren't and they? They're, yeah. yeah, really great. And then I mean, going back to this stage, uh, this phase that I was talking about when I was working at a publisher's office for uh, to be a reader. I mean, at the time. Uh, somebody uh, this kind of foot high box with the manuscript of uh, Bonfire of the Vanities arrived, and somebody said, "There, could I give it a quick read through?" And at that point, for whatever reason, I'd not read Tom Wolfe, and in this way, that the the human mind can so easily go for stupid oppositions. Uh, you know, I th- uh, because I loved Hunter Thompson so much, I felt that meant I didn't like Tom Wolfe, who I hadn't read at that stage. So I said, oh, I don't want to read. I don't like Tom Wolfe. Anyway, years later, I read uh, the right stuff and realized Tom Wolfe was great. And only this year did I finally get reading, uh, get round to reading Bonfire of the Vanities. And what was your which, thought on his fiction? Uh, it's absolutely great. It's so, it's so fantastic. And it's quite a an interesting thing to read it now because of course that was a really really fashionable of the moment zeitgeisty book but uh, the fact that that moment has that version of new york has passed in a way uh, uh, that makes the sort of test of uh, bonfire of the, Van- the vanities even more um, sort of uh, yeah it makes it it makes the stakes higher but oh yeah it's it's reputation as a, as a classic uh, is is completely uh, secured for for me so yeah that was uh, yeah uh, I'm absolutely yeah he's absolutely gr- great reporter and 
novelist up to that point. I haven't read any of the fiction that he wrote after Bonfire of the Vanities. What made you want to write another Great Day at Sea as a book rather than, say, a kind of long-form article or, or an essay? Oh, yeah. Well, that was an unusual uh, book in that it came about in, a, in the following way. I mean, my friend Alan de Botton had been a writer in residence at Heathrow Airport, and he'd had such a good time uh, doing that, and he wrote a very short book about it, that he, he set up this, uh, I suppose you'd call it a foundation, whereby he would get writers to be in residence at unusual places. You know, every college, most prisons now even have writers in residence. And he, he had this idea of getting people in residence at unusual places. And the, uh, the trade-off of that is that you'd then write a short book about it. So he said, was there anywhere I'd like to go? And of course, I'm such a low life that my initial thought was, you know, great, I'll go to the world's most expensive resort and sort of freeload there for as long as possible. <laughs> Uh, but that didn't last for long because, as anyone knows who's ever written some sort of uh, travel journalism, you know, those are the places that are most difficult to write about. So I started to think more seriously about where uh, it seemed to me there was only a point in doing this if you could get access to somewhere that you would never normally get to uh, in your in your normal life. And there were two or three, two places I wanted to go. Obviously, the best place of all would be the International Space Station. Um, that would be a real once-in-a-lifetime thing. But, I mean, I didn't even mention that to Alain because, you know, there was no way they could have swung that. And then very quickly after that, I realised it was something military. I wanted to go to a military place, which is, by definition, off-limits to civilians. And it was a phase of my life when I was really reading a lot about the US Marine Corps, and I thought that would be sort of, I'd quite like to go to the place, uh, you know, where they train the Marines. Uh, and then the other place, the other thing I was interested in was, uh, yeah, an American aircraft carrier for, you know, cause, uh, yeah, for all sorts. And, and you specifically anyway. say you, you don't want it to be British, right? You have that line about it would be like the tough to pro. If you went for the British one, it would be the sort of tough to pro hierarchy. Was this definitely a kind of American, you wanted this to be an American aircraft carrier? Yes, exactly. And of course, any military thing is uh, very strictly hierarchical. So yeah, you get it's, you know, it's not, uh, it's not going to be a sort of, um, it's not going to be a, I don't know, a health food shop collective necessarily. But just something about that the British class system is so naked in, in, in the military, that uh, I wanted that combination of a hierarchy, which I completely endorse in a military setting, but with that light, that, that lovely sort of, within the context of American democracy, if you like. Um, and yeah, I just knew it would just, too many hackles would be raised in, um, uh, in on a British one. And, and in any case, there's another thing, I mean, at that point, uh, you know, we didn't even have an aircraft carrier, whereas, you know, America's got thousands of them all floating around the world. So anyway, that's why I said if you could get me onto an aircraft carrier, that would be great. And then uh, behind the scenes, all sorts of uh, negotiations went on until out of the blue, I got a call saying, um, OK, that's it. You know, uh, you're on. When do you need to fly to Bahrain? So um, I dutifully flew to Bahrain. And the deal was that, um, and I thought I thought I was going to love it on the aircraft carrier because I've always liked, you know, I've just always liked being in America. And then, sure, sure enough, I really did have the, um, I did have a great time as I thought it, as I thought I would. 
And then at the end of this, the price to be paid was that I had to write my book. And it was looked like being the most boring book I'd ever write because there was nothing to discover. You know, in the course of writing the jazz book, I'd been able to discover what it was that was great about jazz. In the course of writing the First World War book, I found out what it was about the First World War that meant so much for me. Whereas with the uh, the aircraft carrier book, I'd had the experience. I knew what to make of the experience. It was great. And then all I had to do was like a court stenographer, sort of write it up. And initially it was a bit of a bore doing that. And there was no formal, there was no structural kind of uh, excitement to be had. But then, you know, as I started writing it, something strange happened and I thought, I was so worried about not having enough to say that I kept writing and I thought, well, I'll just keep writing and then I can cut it down to the required 30,000 words. And then, of course, being a, um, being, let's say, a fan of my own stuff, I found I'd written 60,000 words to which I'd become curiously attached. So I had simultaneously effectively halved my rate of pay per word um, and the, 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 the book sort of, it, it, whereas it was written um, as something, you know, as a, a, sort of, um, a sort of commissioned thing, it kind of, uh, it sort of grew out of that and it became, I sort of felt, oh yeah, this has become, uh, uh, it's become a, a sort of proper book by me in, in its own right, even though its origins were, were so different to any of the others. I think that's probably coming towards the end of our time. But um, Jeff, look, thank you for being such a, a stellar guest on Always Take Notes and for persisting with the technology and wishing you with all the best with your other projects going forward. Uh, thank you, Simon. And thank you, Rachel. It's been a, been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's been great. Likewise. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what did you make of our interview with Jeff? I enjoyed it. Um, another one, obviously done done remotely, which is something that we are we are getting better at, I think, <laughs> um, uh, and a big beast to have, a, a you know famous famous name and so forth. He was very gracious, and I think he was, you know, again someone who'd achieved a huge level of success and kind of portrayed it as a sort of effortless series of things that just mm. happened happened to happen, which we've had a number of times, and I think we've discussed. I'm sometimes a little bit skeptical of that kind of presentation. Um, but otherwise, it was um, yeah. I mean, he's clearly you know an extremely distinguished and, and very competent writer, and great to lift the lid on his his process and his his creative life. Yeah, I agree. Uh, he pushed back a bit when I asked him about his career, the development of his career. Um, but I really enjoyed talking to Jeff. I particularly enjoyed hearing about writing another great day at sea. Yeah, he um, he he berated me mildly I think because I mentioned the the Tom Wolfe piece from the 60s uh, which he then he then pointed out he had in fact name checked in another great day at sea but he did it very graciously um yeah so it's a great to have had him on the show anyway this has been Always Take Notes hosted by me Simon Acom and me Rachel Lloyd our producer is Nicola Keane our social media is by Katie Lee our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by Jess Danheiser if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Instagram at Always Take Notes, and on Patreon at Always Take Notes. Many thanks. Goodbye.